The Two Mats is brought to you by the New European. If you like the contents of this podcast, The Two Mats, if you're a regular listener, you're going to love The New European. And I've got a very special subscription offer for you for just a pound a week or two pounds a week if you want the newspaper. And that's the price of a bottle of water, folks, a small bottle of water. You can get The New European delivered to your door every week and you'll be supporting great independent journalism and you'll be kicking back against the corrosive nationalism that helped bring Brexit to Britain's shores. You'll also get a £25 voucher to spend at The New European shop and you can get a great book we've just published on the Battle of Orgreave or you can get a t-shirt or you can get a mug or you can get a great bollocks to Brexit passport cover. So do the right thing please, support this podcast and also support The New European. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S and there's a link in the show notes. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hello, this is Matt Kelly, Editor-in-Chief of The New European. I just want to take a moment of your time to tell you about something I think is very exciting if you're a fan of The New European and you value what we do. This week we launched a co-ownership scheme where we're actually offering you, New European readers, listeners, fans, a chance to become a co-owner of the business and help us grow and do more good journalism, which I think is something you'll agree the world needs right now. From just 15 quid up to 15,000 quid, you can invest in our business and benefit from a share of any future success. And there's also a range of great exclusive investor rewards to enjoy. I hope you take a look. In the first three days of the scheme, we've raised more than £600,000 and welcomed more than 800 new co-owners into the business. So why not join them? You'll be helping us fund a sustained marketing campaign to spread the word about the new European and to do more great journalism, just like this podcast. Visit our website for details, theneweuropean.co.uk. Everything you need to know is there. And as with any investment, remember, capital is at risk. Thanks for listening. I hope you take a look. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you enjoy what we do, there really is no better way to support us than to subscribe. And to make that decision easier for you, here's a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for a pound a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to our print and digital package for just two pounds a week. 
what do you get with print and digital for two pounds a week unlimited digital access and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year to take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers subscribe at the new slash tne podcast this week on the new european podcast what's behind the financial crisis is britain really suffering more than other leading european nations and if so why we'll be unpicking all of that with the new european columnist and business expert john c blue of course, some malevolent ministers and bad backbenchers will go into our hall of shame, and you have sent us your political band names to make up the worst music festival in the world ever. But first, I want to talk for a minute about Nigel Farage. No, don't turn over. Don't don't flip onto another podcast. It'll only take a minute. Nigel Farage has got a new show on GB News. It's called Farage at Large. I like that kind of uh, title concept. I wonder what's next for Nigel Farage. Uh, some ideas that I've had. Uh, Farage adrift on a barge. Farage locked overnight in a garage. And also this one, Farage suffering a sustained howitzer barrage. Um, maybe I'll write into GB News with those ideas. But Farage at large is sort of like question time. Um, it goes across the country. And this week, uh, the lucky people of Lincoln are getting Nigel Farage. And here's what the GB News website says. Tickets cost £1.50 and include a free drink on arrival. Drinks include a glass of wine, a pint of beer or a soft drink. Um, Maybe the soft drink's a milkshake. That'd be ironic, wouldn't it? But hang on a minute. The average cost of a pint of beer in the UK is roughly £4. And then a ticket costs £1.50. So that means that GB News are effectively bribing people with £2.50 to sit with Nigel Farage for an hour. Would you sit with Nigel Farage for an hour for £2.50? Well, I suppose it'd be all about whether you could bring your AirPods or not. Talking of people who've been around for years, singing the same old tunes, did you enjoy Glastonbury? We asked New European podcast listeners which politician would be headlining the worst music festival ever, and what would their band be called? Some good ones here, and we will start with Nigel Farage. Mick Meller, uh, sorry, Mark Meller, says Nigel Farage and the Frog Chorus. Lisa Samuels says Farage against the machine, and she puts in brackets preferably a wood chipping machine. Um, Mike Howitt, this is a good one. Jacob Reese Mogg and the Moglodites singing Money's Too Tight to Mention. Ruth Buckley says George Osborne and the Job Seekers. John Sheed says his band would be called DC Comic, fronted by David Cameron. Taylor Price uh, says the worst band in the world would be Liz Truss and the Port Markets. And Carl Megson, I like this one. He says his band would be Jonathan Gullis and the Shut the Hell Up, You Total Idiots. John Wadsworth has got two. Neil Parrish and the Big Sexy Tractors. And Govey and the Sniffers. Bobby Hundreds, possibly not his real name, says Boris Johnson should join the band Liars. And Helen Banks says Boris and the Dimwits. And Claire Connolly, no idea uh, what she means by this. She says Boris Johnson and the BJs. That's just his initials, isn't it? Dominic Raab uh, is mentioned by Clive Nelson. Uh, His uh, worst ever band would be Dominic Raab and the Rabots. And Dr. Evil, again, possibly not his real name, says, I can see Dominic Cummings and Dominic Raab uh, as the Lennon and McCartney of a band called Dom and Dommer. But the one who has really run with this uh, this week is Kev Meredith. He sent in loads, and the best of them are 
Theresa May and the Bloody Awkward Women, Pretty Patel and the Dinghies, Philip Hammond and the Magic Money Trees, and my favourite, Jacob Rees-Mogg and the Dandy Arseholes. Now, before we go to John C. Bloom, here's a reminder of another brilliant podcast from the New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or to download in the same new European feed where you found this episode. Now, to matters economic, it is getting pretty scary out there. But is the global financial crisis really affecting Britain worse than other countries? And if so, what's driving that? Joining me to explain it all is business expert and new European columnist, John T. Bloom. John, let's start with the latest news. Uh, the UK's economy up by 0.8% between January and March, uh, according to the Office for National Statistics. Real GDP then 0.7% above pre-pandemic levels. So even before Ukraine happened, the big bang of growth that I think lots of people were expecting, Rishi Sunak was probably counting on, has not happened, and now it won't happen. What's your reaction to this figure of 0.8% growth in the first quarter? I, th- I think most people will think it's a rather disappointing. Yes. Although if you'd kept that going throughout the year, you'd have had a pretty decent growth rate. The trouble is that the British economy had uh, probably one of the worst downturns of a developed country during COVID. Uh, it bounced back faster, as you would expect, if you had a bigger fall, you get a bigger bounce. Yep. But that bounce seems to have just ground to a halt. Uh, and we now know that it's got all these headwinds. It's got increasing commodity prices, increasing fuel prices, and a war in Ukraine, which means those problems are going to continue. The pound has fallen in value by about 10%, and that pushes up prices as well. Um, so we've got inflation, we've got money being ripped out of people's wallets, because every time they go and fill the car up, they have to spend money on that that they can't spend on eating out or going to the cinema or buying a TV. And so the economy is slowing down quite dramatically. And, and the, I mean, the commodity prices, the fuel prices, it, how much of that is 
is Ukraine. Is, is there a, a hangover from the pandemic that's affected those as well, or is that all Ukraine? The fuel prices aren't all Ukraine because they started rising quite steadily beforehand. That, that seems to be a supply problem. Uh, and um, normally what happens is everyone um, decides that they suddenly like the Saudis and they don't care about them beheading people. And would you mind just pinch, um, pumping a bit more oil? Uh, and that doesn't seem to have happened this time. The, the, the prices have just been allowed to rise. The particular problem for the UK is that oil and gas are priced in dollars. So um, when the pound falls by 10%, prices go up by 10%, yes. um, let alone any of the problems in the international market. And then, then the pr problem with Ukraine is so much of the world's commodities and raw materials come from that part of the world. So Ukraine was one of the largest exporters of wheat and barley and is the world's largest exporter of sunf uh, uh, sunflower oil. And then you have Russia, which is just such a vast area. Not only is it a huge oil and, and gas exporter, but things like uh, zinc, nickel, aluminium, titanium. The aircraft industry just can't get its hands on titanium at the moment. And all these things have absolutely soared in price. And these are the raw materials that every country uses uh, and every manufacturer uses. And fuel is in all those products as well. So you need energy to smelt aluminium, to make cars, to transport food to the supermarket. And the final one is not only do they produce so much of the world's food, they also produce a great, a great deal of the world's, world's fertilizers. And therefore, the ability of the rest of the world to grow food is seriously curtailed. Uh, and this is a kind of perfect storm of inflation. And it's inflation that the Bank of England will find it very difficult to deal with. In fact, all countries find it difficult to deal with because it's imported inflation uh, and putting up interest rates doesn't really do much to cut the price of zinc or oil or, or petrol or anything else. I mean, the projections for our inflation, for inflation in the UK, look to be, I mean, they're better than some countries in the EU. I think they are, I think they're, they're looking slightly worse than, than many of the, the bigger countries in the EU. Though, what, what is, what's behind that? Well, there, there are two factors. The first I've just mentioned is, is the fall in the value of the pound. Yes. That is, a lot of that is related to, to Brexit uh, and the reputation of the government. Uh, the reputation of the government is terrible. It is picking a fight with the EU. America doesn't like that. It is um, very angry with Britain. So Britain's politics look to be uh, dangerous, uh, not very serious, uh, increasing the chances of economic damage. Uh, and then Brexit more generally, we know, has damaged the ability of companies to import and export, and that is pushing up prices. Uh, so, you have a, so you have Brexit causing a fall in the value of the pound, which, make, which makes inflation worse. And then Brexit makes it worse because it's more difficult to import. And you, you have these Brexiteers who say, well, that's brilliant for homegrown industry. But the reason um, someone was sourcing their raw materials or their food or their, their components from abroad was because they were cheaper. Hmm. So if you have to, if you suddenly say uh, we've made it much more difficult to import, you can replace them with a British supplier. Uh, you're, you're saying, well, you're going to have to put your prices up because the British supplier isn't as efficient as the one in Germany or Italy or wherever you're getting it from before. So, the, so we know there's an inflationary effect from, from Brexit. In fact, Adam Posen is a very um, uh, well-respected uh, economist in America, basically said half the inflation is down to Brexit. Um, I don't think it's that much, but it's certainly a contributing factor, and it helps explain 
uh, why our, our inflation is going to be higher and longer, as uh, the Governor of Bank of England said just yesterday, we're going to have higher inflation than most of our competitors and it's going to last longer. I mean, we're in stagflation now, aren't we? Which, you know, we're in a period of, of stagflation and obviously high inflation is part of that. Low growth is the other half of stagflation. And one of the most eye-catching things, one of the most horrifying things in, in your piece is this OECD report, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation Development, um, which it came out a few weeks ago now, didn't it? And it said basically predicted that the growth in the UK was going to be the lowest of any G20 country next year, bar Russia. Why, why is that? What's happening there? Well, you, you have this kind of um, long, there's a combination of long and short term problems for the British economy. Since the credit crunch, growth has been about 1% a year lower than it was before the credit crunch. So from 2008, right up to COVID, uh, we lost about 10% of economic growth. The economy would have been 10% bigger than it than it was if growth had continued at the same rate as in 2000 to 2008. Hmm. So uh, that and that seems to have been a permanent hit. The uh, British government, you know, tried to do things like encouraging investment and so on. It doesn't seem to have worked. Then we had COVID. That co- that was very damaging. The government threw a lot of money at that, including trying to encourage companies to invest, and it signally failed to get them to invest. Um, it keeps throwing tax benefits at companies, and they do not invest as much as they used to. Yeah, which is really frightening. I mean, there's fairly shocking investment uh, statistics in that report that came out today, isn't there? Yes, and it, it and it's it, that's Brexit. It, basically, companies uh, investment flatlined from 2016 to today, and there's no sign of it improving at all. So you you have um, you have pretty low growth and low productivity growth, which is an absolute scandal and is terrifying, and nobody seems to be able to do anything about. And then you have Brexit. Well, Brexit, according to the Office for Budget Responsibility, is going to take four percent off growth over the next ten years. Well, that's another zero point four percent a year off your long term growth rate. So it's gone down from two point nine on average to one point nine. On average, 1.8, I think, on average, um, because of the credit crunch. And then Brexit takes another 0.4% off that. So it's down to about 1.4% growth. That's terrible long term growth. It's really pathetic. And it's terrifying because you don't need much of a knock to take you from 1.4% growth into a recession. If you're like America and you grow at 3, 4, 5% a year, then you need a much bigger uh, shock to destroy all that growth and push you into a recession. So we're extremely vulnerable to any shocks because of um, uh, the low productivity and growth from the credit crunch because of COVID and now because of Brexit, which is a completely unnecessary um, problem for the British economy, but which we suffer uniquely. And so that's why you end up bottom of the list uh, with the lowest growth growth except for Russia. Uh, And if you could, you know... (laughs) We know Russia, is, with all those sanctions on it, is suffering terribly. We're a free market, open economy, and yet we're going to perform worse than anybody else. I mean, it, it, it must be said that the OECD's, OCD, OECD's findings, rather, uh, have been disputed by, I mean, David Frost was last week was saying he didn't agree with them. But the OECD, are they some kind of fly-by-night Remainer organisation? Do the o- OECD hate Britain? Who are Who is the o- OECD? Well, the OECD is um, a Paris-based organisation, but 
it has nothing it's that doesn't mean it's um an eu institution originally it was actually set up um to help coordinate the um uh, marshall plan and right. it evolved, evolved evolved from that as a kind of um western nations economic monitor and think tank and it does an awful lot of work on how to improve your economies tax systems that work unemployment systems that work and don't and yeah so it's a kind of advisory and consultancy uh, think tank an international organization extremely well respected with some of the best brains in the world working for it and it is not um some kind of left wing romaniac institution it is pretty capitalist free market solution uh, based organization i did a two week um internship there uh quite a few years ago um and you know it's a pretty impressive organization it, it it's rep- the reputation of its economists and its forecasting is up there with the world bank and the imf uh and you know really serious international organizations this isn't some fly by night uh bunch of dodgy left wing sandal wearing economists and frankly lord frost who is as far as i'm aware has a degree in medieval french his you know his economic criticisms seem to be based on the idea that everybody is against him and there's a conspiracy and uh, he knows better than they do well the figures don't lie um and they show that people who predicted that the economy would suffer because of brexit were right that the economy is suffering because of brexit and it's fairly obvious why you've just put huge barriers to trade between the uk and its biggest market yeah. um and then you turn around and say well there won't be any uh, economic damage from that it's patently obvious to anybody with half a brain that if you make things more difficult for companies in their biggest market there's going to be knock on consequences i mean we can turn to another fly by night organisation led by a bunch of remainers who hate britain the office for budget responsibility i mean they they calculate we you mentioned this in the piece as well that brexit is going to cause a permanent loss to the british economy of 4% of gdp about 100 billion a year um, I presume the Office of Budget Responsibilities credentials are, are also not really in question, apart from by David Frost. Uh, yeah, David Frost and a few others. Um, uh, apparently, the Chancellor was furious after his last budget when they basically brought brought out the, their own analysis, which yeah. basically said the elephant in the room was Brexit and nobody mentioned it. Um, no, I mean they they were specifically set up by the by a Conservative Chancellor. Hmm on the grounds that um, it, it was a real mistake for the Treasury to basically mark its own homework. So the Treasury would prepare a budget, the Chancellor would stand up and deliver it, and then the, the Treasury would say, this is a wonderful budget and it does fantastic work and it does exactly what we want and it's going to be a huge success. Uh, and I think actually it was probably uh, Gordon Brown's continual kind of fiddling with the figures um, uh, that... Uh, led to the Conservatives to say, well, well, let's just set up a totally independent, highly reputable, very experienced um, organisation made up of the best statisticians and economists going to just go over the figures of the Treasury and tell us whether they're right or not. And that's what they've done with conspicuous success. I mean, I don't know of anybody outside of uh, the Brexiteer realm who's seriously criticised their work. It's always been very, very good. And, um, And it's honest. So, it, it, you know, sometimes chancellors don't like it when somebody turns up and says, well, we don't think your growth figures, uh, you know, for the next couple of years really bear inspection. We mm. think it's going to be this. Or 
how, you know, you should be really worried about the demographic time bomb and an aging population. You'll need to find more money for this. They don't like being told these things, but it is generally good for them, chancellors of any party, to have somebody look over their shoulder and say, I'm, af I'm afraid what you're trying to do here isn't going to work or it doesn't add up. And that's what they're there for. And how much does that lost 100 billion then? I mean, it's such a huge sum of money take 100 billion out of out of the out of gdp then how much does that actually cost the the, the treasury and and what could the treasury be spending it on instead well the the, the general rule is i think tax take now is about 40 percent. so if you if you lose um 100 billion in the size of the economy the treasury is losing 40 billion a year right. um which is a, which is a heck of a lot of money it's um I wrote it down somewhere, I can't remember. Oh, yeah, we're, we're borrowing about 99 billion a year at the moment. So you could almost halve the amount of money the government has to borrow. Um, or 40 billion is enough to take 6p off the basic rate of taxation. So you take it down from 20% to 14%. Or it's about a fifth of the NHS's budget. So you could increase health spending by 20%, or you could double the defence budget, I think. Yeah. Uh, that's what's been lost. So we are we are trying to fund everything the government does from a smaller pot, yeah. a pot that is much smaller than it should be. So we had all that stuff about low productivity and low growth. Without that, the economy would be 10% bigger than it is. So you'd be able to fund uh, lots of things. Without Brexit, uh, the government would have another um, 10, 40 billion a year uh, to spend on these things. And it's got to find that money from somewhere else. So that means... Either, either tax rises or more borrowing or less spending um, or a combination of all those things. There isn't, there isn't a, you know, you can, borrow, you can borrow some more money, you can raise some more money or you can spend less money. There, there isn't a third option. Yes. I mean, there's another effect. I mean, this is part of what I think you call a triple whammy, which is, which is to do with the pandemic. And it's the effect that the pandemic has had on, the workforce and therefore the, the the number of tax pounds that are coming into the, the the treasury just just i mean just talk about this labor market participation thing um and why that's been so damaging as well yeah it, it was quite interesting during covid that lots of people uh started working from home hmm. lots of people were laid off or put on furlough or um you know had to find other jobs and so on and a lot of them just left the workforce and they haven't really come back. Um, there's a lot of kind of research going into, you know, who they are and what they are. But the, there was also, if you, if you remember, there was an awful lot of people who moved out of cities and into the countryside. Yes. Um, and that seems to be part of the same thing, that they decided that actually you could sell an expensive house in the city and buy a cheaper one in the countryside. And then one of you doesn't have to go to work if you're a couple. Or if you're 58 and you were... Um, basically kicked out during COVID and you got voluntary redundancy, you couldn't even, well, I can, I can survive on this. I don't really have to go back to work. Um, and people who were coming up to retirement but were worried about what they would do at home and would they be kicking their heels around, discovered during lockdown that actually they quite enjoyed gardening and reading books. And th So we think that um, about 600,000 people, uh, fewer than, than were predicted, are working now. That's quite a large figure. I mean, you know, it's a, a significant percentage of the workforce. Uh, and uh, that helps explain lots of issues. And, you know, one of them is we know we have real problems because of Brexit that we just don't have 
access to the huge labour market we did in the EU before Brexit. And that provided us with lots of um, keen, eager, young, working people. And also the flexibility that, you know, when we needed uh, fruit and vegetables picking, that they would come over and do that. When we needed someone to, you know, work in a pub or a restaurant late at night, they were willing to do that. And increasingly British people who are more highly educated, who have gone to university, 50% of, of uh, young people go now go to university, are much less willing to do those things. They can get better paid jobs. So there was a kind of combination. It's not just people leaving the workforce. If you look at the problems at the airports at the moment, which I'm, which I'm just writing a piece on, a lot of that is, is the same problem, that people realised that they didn't have to stand on the tarmac in the snow hmm. um, uh, loading and unloading aircraft. They could actually go and work for Amazon in the warmth yes. and get paid about the same amount of money or more. And this kind of reliance on a vast pool of cheap, easy-to-use labour uh, has uh, seems to have come to an end. Uh, and that's people leaving the workforce who aren't paying tax and other people who are moving away from flexible, uh, you know, difficult jobs and finding nice, safe, secure jobs. And that is going to have an economic effect. You, you, you can't walk past a cafe or a restaurant or a bar these days without seeing an advert in the window for a barista or a cook or a chef or a waitress or mm. like that. And, you know, that, that's a permanent problem now for the British economy. Because that that wasn't in past. If if you know six hundred thousand people had decided to take early retirement or stay at home, we would have just you know attracted six hundred thousand people from somewhere else to, to do the work somewhere else in Europe probably. And that's what would have happened. And that and and so the flexibility um, is is being kind of ripped out of the British economy, and that's going to have some serious effects. Not just for the Chancellor who will have less money coming in as tax, but for companies who are going to have to pay more and treat their people better uh, and work harder to keep them because there are they've suddenly discovered there are other options out there. And, I mean, that comes, you know, even before these things happen, you mentioned the credit crunch. It, it, it's been a, I mean, it's been a bad dozen years, hasn't it, for, for a, a Conservative Party, a party which, you know, has always prided itself on being the, the best stewards of the British economy. Um, it, it has been a, a bad dozen years, a lot of it self-inflicted. And, you know, now we have Brexit at the time when, you know, with worlds, the economic system of the world is reeling, still reeling from COVID. There's a re, the supply chain crisis as a result of COVID. Now we've got these huge rises in commodity prices. So, I mean, can we get out of this? What, what does the future hold? The Bank of England obviously says that we're, we are heading into a recession. Um, but I mean, who are the Bank of England anyway? Some fly-by-night organisation led by Remainers, I imagine, who hate Britain. Um, is it is it as bad as it seems? I, I think it's I think it is really bad because we're looking at two or three years of very low growth again, and we've had you know we had the credit crunch and COVID, which are the two worst recessions in living history. They're supposed to be one, one in once in a lifetime um, disasters. And we've had them within 12 years, 10, 12 years of each other. And now we're going into a recession caused by a, a European war, which is going to be pretty deep and, and, and difficult for everybody, particularly for the UK. And all the predictions on you know, tax cuts and more money for the NHS and an ageing population are based on getting some growth. And we're just not growing. We've had 10 years of low growth, then a huge recession. We've had 
just enough growth to bounce back from COVID, and now we're into another recession. And it's coming, these, these hits to the economy are coming far too quickly, yeah. and the economy isn't strong enough to, um, to take them. Every time, we just get a little bit weaker and a little bit poorer. You know, the, the, there's, a, there's a graph on, on the piece I've written about, you know, this about where has all the money gone and what, what recession is coming. If we, if we maintained a high growth rate, um, everybody, average earnings in this country would be £11,000 higher than they are now. What would we all do with £11,000? You know, that's a heck of a lot of money to lose. Uh, and there's no sign of it changing because um, the government's been talking the key to this is improving productivity. If you improve productivity, you get growth, you, you make more with less, you become richer, you can afford to pay people more. That's what's lost. We've never, never got that growth and productivity back. And this government just doesn't seem to have a plan. It, where is its long-term economic policy? Where are its policies to improve productivity, to get investment up, to improve training? The apprentices scheme, they reformed it in, I think, twenty. Uh, 15, I think it was, or 16, it's an utter disaster that we have fewer apprentices now than we did 10 years ago. We desperately need skilled workers and we're not training them. And nobody has turned around and said, okay, those reforms we introduced have been a disaster. We'll have to change it all and improve it. Nobody is saying that. Where is, where is the long-term growth strategy to improve investment or to develop new industries or to um, you know, improve infrastructure? all of which are necessary to, to roll out um, bandwidth and uh, Wi-Fi around the country, all the kinds of things everybody is telling the government, um, you know, even its own advisors are telling them, this is what you have to do. Nothing, hmm. absolutely nothing. They're utterly obsessed with Brexit and infighting and scandal, and it just takes up all their time, uh, and they don't have a strategy. And frankly, you know, any strategy was strategy would be better than none. Uh, frankly, we, we, we just need more growth, desperately need more growth, and there's no sign of it coming. Well, one strategy is, I mean, which Rishi Sunak has, has signalled, is a tax-cutting strategy. And, of course, the tax burden is the highest it's been for many years. And, you know, even without that £40 billion lost through Brexit, you know, presumably the idea is that the government could slash growth taxes and stimulate some growth by doing so I, I get more i spend more companies invest more workers more workers are hired wages go up is is cutting taxes a, a way out of this or is that another blind alley well cutting taxes um would help uh, but it depends where you find the money if you if you find the money by cutting government expenditure i.e. Um, you know, fewer police officers and firefighters and less for the NHS. You're just taking money that would be spent on the health service and giving it to people to spend themselves. Hmm. So the economic stimulus um, isn't, isn't very great because it's, it's basically robbing Peter to pay Paul. You really do have to actually borrow the money to do that because then you're, you're, pu you're pumping more money into the economy now the cost is you have to repay the money over time, but you desperately need more money now. So the sensible thing to do is to, is to spend it now. That's Keynesian economics. You borrow in a recession in order to stimulate growth and spending and get out of the recession. But what the government is basically talking about is the Chancellor's hidden some money away. Mm -hmm. And before the next election, it will cut income tax a bit. Um, well, that's just a pre-election bribe. That's not a, that's not a, 
uh, an economic strategy or a way out of the recession. That's money you could spend now, which you're holding on to because it's going to be politically advantageous for your party. So I don't think that's really um, much of an economic um, strategy. And then you see that the you know one of the reasons companies are complaining at the moment is that to raise money, the chancellor has increased corporation tax quite dramatically, and it's going to continue to increase over over coming years. That's a, that's basically a tax on company profits. Interestingly enough, during the austerity, George Osborne slashed corporation tax on the grounds that it would bring more money in. The second the chancellor needed more money, he increased corporation tax, which tells you what was really going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then we have the Chancellor giving huge investment allowances at the moment to British business to encourage them to invest. And it's just not happening. Um, so I spoke to some business people about this recently and they said, well, it needs to be better targeted and it needs to cover leasing machinery as well as buying machinery. There's all kinds of technical ways they might improve it. But the fact of the matter is, since Brexit, investment has flatlined no matter how much money the government has thrown at it uh, to encourage investment which suggests actually that it's just Brexit. And um, maybe if they stopped fighting over um, the Northern Ireland protocol and actually tried to improve the border and um, cut red tape and get goods moving and improve supply chains, companies would have faith and start investing because just throwing money at them doesn't seem to be working. Um, so, so the short answer is yes, um, tax cuts can help. Increased government spending can help. But if, if, you, if you pay for the tax cuts by cutting government spending, then you're not really doing very much for the economy at all. I mean, it is a fairly gloomy prognosis, isn't it? And at a time when, you know, economies like the, the France and Germany and the USA seem to be seeing a, a way out, um, it does look like we're going to be stuck in this for longer than everybody else. What's, I mean, what's your, let's just end with, I mean, what's your advice to people who are listening to this podcast? What should they What should they do with their money? What What should they prepare for? Well, if they've got any money, I mean, um, the vast majority of people have very, very small savings or none at all, and that's just the consequence of years and years of low pay rises and um, low growth. So that you know, people are like the economy generally. People are in a very bad position when it comes to preparing uh, for all these, you know, all these blows higher fuel prices, higher food prices and everything like that. Um, the, the only thing I can say is, you know, inflation is going to last uh, well into next year and it's going to be very painful. Um, so if you can cut back now on non-essentials, it's probably a good idea because things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, but there isn't, a, you know, there isn't any, you know, the, the, the when the Prime Minister said people should get promoted or get work harder or work longer, um, it was... It was pretty um, patronising advice, but actually there aren't that many more options. If people don't have savings, they've either got to cut back their spending considerably or they've got to earn some more money. You know, just like government, just like saying about the government finances, we know that that some of them are borrowing more. We know some of them are going to um, payday lenders, um, running up the, the credit card bills, even now. And we've only just started into this downturn. So this is really, really worrying. Uh, if this goes on, uh, people are going to start losing their houses, um, running up huge debts, um, not being able to pay their energy bills, all kinds of problems. And it's only just started. And the, the money the Chancellor has thrown at it so far um, is not enough. He, you know, He's going to probably have to do this again next year or in the autumn statement. 
because um, it's going to be very, very painful for millions and millions of people. Something to look forward to there. Things can only get worse before they get better. Let's see D. Ream make a, a song out of that. Thank you, uh, as ever, John E. Bloom. Thank you. Thank you, Jaunty Bloom. To read him on the financial crisis and to get full access to his archive, you can subscribe at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Uh, before we go to the Hall of Shame, here's your regular reminder that Series 1, Series 2 of Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast are available now. They tell the life stories of remarkable Europeans in 10-minute bites You can find them where you got this podcast. Just search for Great European Lives Podcast. So finally, the Hall of Shame. It's the residence of blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, all of that. Let's see uh, if you can guess who is in the Hall of Shame this week uh, when I read something that they have written. Once every village had its ironmongery. When I lived in picturesque Sutton Valence, there was Wildings, not only in Aladdin's cave of bolts and curtain hooks, but a service centre too, where I could take a temporarily malfunctioning hoover. Anything I wanted, it found. Alack! It closed a few years later. Yes, alack! She said it again. It was Anne Widdicombe writing in the Daily Express. Alack! What a great phrase. If only there was a lack of Anne Widdicombe. Anne's main piece in the column this week is about a lack. It's about a lack of loyalty in the Tory party. She's castigating Michael Howard and William Hague and Steve Baker and Andrew Bridgen for not sticking up for Boris Johnson. Uh, And of course, that is coming from uh, Mrs. Loyalty, Anne Widdicombe. She said her boss, Michael Howard, uh, boss at the Home Office, wasn't he? Had something of the night about him. And then she refused to serve in Ian Duncan Smith's shadow cabinet. Uh, she went on to snipe at David Cameron over same-sex marriage, and then she left the Conservatives altogether and joined uh, Nigel Farage in the Brexit, par- Brexit party. Uh, real show of loyalty there. Lord David Frost and his Union Jack Sox are in the Hall of Shame. This is what he said last week. Democracy counts. Brexit automatically delivers democracy, so Brexit is working. Well, QED, I can't wait to heat my home and fill my car up with that lovely democracy. Uh, And then I might have a bit of democracy and chips for dinner. A pint of democracy to wash it all down with, don't mind if I do. Do I have to sit with Nigel Farage to get a pint? Maybe not then. Uh, Ian Duncan Smith is in the Hall of Shame. He went out to defend the government's policy of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda for processing. And he said that if they went to Rwanda for processing and they were found to be genuine refugees, they would just come back to the UK. All is forgiven. Sorry about that. Sorry about the trip to Rwanda. I hope you had a nice holiday. Now we're going to let you into the UK. He said the people that they are going to be sending to Rwanda are going to be essentially those suspected strongly of being there for economic reasons. They'll be processed. If we're wrong, they'll come back to the UK. Only It's not them that are wrong. It's Ian Duncan Smith that's wrong because people sent to Rwanda, even if they're found to be genuine asylum seekers, even if they already have family in the UK, will not be returned to the UK unless the UK specifically asks for them to be returned. And can you imagine Pretty Patel doing that? But most shameful in the Hall of Shame this week are the 16%. Now, who the hell are the 16%, I hear you ask? That is the percentage of the British public 
who have told YouGov they think Brexit is going well. 2% say it's going very well. 14% say it's going fairly well. Meanwhile, a total of 54% of people who YouGov asked said it's going badly, of whom 32% said, correctly, Brexit is going very badly. And then that leaves 20% who just couldn't be asked. 16% now. 16% of people think Brexit is going well. Is it possible, do you think, that YouGov went out to interview a 1,000 people and then just interviewed by mistake, interviewed 160 Tory MPs. That's the only reason that I can possibly understand for it. And as for the 2% who think Brexit is going very well, well, I'll have 20 quid's worth of whatever kind of hallucinatory drugs they're taking. And then I will settle back in the sunshine to enjoy the musical stylings of Jacob Rees-Mogg and the dandy arseholes. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening, and thanks to our producer, Eleanor Longman-Rood. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers, if you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNA podcast, you can join us for the great price of just a pound a week for digital or two pounds a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe and will give us nice ratings and lovely reviews. You can join our Facebook readers group or follow us on Twitter at New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, which will be in a little while because I'm going on holiday. So long, snowflakes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Monday, it's the anniversary of kids' classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. On Tuesday, how Rockford became the cheese of kings. On Wednesday, we meet the Jobs and Wozniak of the 1800s. On Thursday, the history of the YMCA, from the city of London to the village people. And on Friday, the edgy musical that made Greece the word. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.